Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we are spiritually prepared for the study of God's word. Scripture says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we are so thankful for your grace that you have given us your word, and in your word you have given us all that we need to know in order to live in a way that honors and glorifies you, that in your word you have explained to us the panorama of human history and the basic dynamics that are at the core of human history in order to demonstrate your love and grace to mankind, and especially your plan for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your plan for the nation Israel, and how that is going to be brought to culmination in the uh, horrible period known as the Tribulation. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we might uh, see what is going on, not just as a matter of academic reflection, but as a way of understanding how all the different parts of Scripture do fit together and complement one another, and how the end times events have all been Uh, predicted from the Old Testament times, and that what happens in the New Testament is these things are are just brought together in a greater way. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our study in Revelation 19, which focuses on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming, that occurs at the time, at the really towards the end of what is known as the campaign of Armageddon. It's not a battle, but a series of battles that take place over a period of time. And I'm not sure, and I don't think anybody can say how long that period of time is, whether it's a period of just a few weeks or a few months. I tend to think it's somewhere, could be anywhere from two months to six months, but it, there's a tremendous amount of movement that is going on as Troops are brought into the northern part of Israel, up in the area of the Galilee on the plain of Esdralon, as a uh, supply base and launching point for this campaign. And there are other armies that are moving. There's a, m- armies from the east, armies in the north, uh, armies in the south, and different things have taken place. And we've seen that the first thing that occurs is the gathering of the Antichrist armies, the beast, the ruler of the end-time kingdom, gathers together at the Valley of Megiddo or the Jezreel Valley or the Valley of Esdralon. All those terms refer to the same place, which is just below the ruins of the ancient ancient town of Megiddo. They've discovered some 26 levels of civilization there, so this was a major crossroads on the ancient on the ancient trade routes. So that's the starting point, and about that time there is, a, there is an attack that takes place by another army, and not sure which army it is. It could be coming out of the, out of the north, but there are these other armies that gather against Babylon, and Babylon is the economic center of 
of uh, activity in the Antichrist worldwide empire. That becomes the uh, Wall Street, as it were, of the end-time kingdom. And so the Babylon has been rebuilt, and now that is destroyed. And then that's the first two stages in the eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon, which we're studying. The third stage brings us to the fall of Jerusalem. Now, what is really fascinating about all of this, as we've seen from our our preliminary studies as as we got into this, all the passages that relate to the day of the Lord, talking about it as a broader concept referring to the entire seven-year tribulation period to uh, the more narrow use of the day of the Lord, which is almost synonymous for the campaign of Armageddon. They're not really synonyms, but in its more narrow focus, the term day of the Lord really does focus in on these final climactic judgments that God is going to bring against rebellious mankind and and also that he is going to come to the rescue of the remnant of Israel. And the focal point of the uh, Armageddon campaign from the viewpoint of the Antichrist, this end-time, in, this end-time ruler, is to destroy the remnant of Israel to wipe out all of the surviving Jews that he can. This is going to be the this is the Holocaust on steroids. It's going to be the, one of the most horrible periods. It will be the most horrible period in all of the history of Israel. This is what the prophet Daniel predicted in in Daniel chapter twelve that this would be a time like no other time in all of the history of the world, Jesus reiterated that in Matthew chapter 25. It, it, it's as if you took all of the horrors of the trench warfare of World War One, all of the horrors of the Holocaust of World War II, all of the horrors of all of these other wars that have taken place, and you take them and you just compress them and condense them within an extremely short amount of time in that end-time battle. And if you stop and reflect upon what that means, if you're a person who is living in the Middle East at this time, this is just a time of just unprecedented uh, horror, hopelessness, and helplessness as the scale of destruction goes beyond anything that's ever taken place uh, in history. And it is all motivated, we know, from what uh, Revelation says in Revelation 12. The motivation comes from, comes from Satan because his goal is to destroy uh, Israel and to wipe them off of the face of the earth. And the reason for that goes back to an understanding of the basic scope of biblical revelation. And we've studied this many times that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after uh, Adam and Eve had sinned, when God uh, approached them and God confronted the serpent, confronted Eve, and confronted Adam, he addressed the serpent, and he told the serpent that the, the, there would be the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, who, would, uh, who he would bruise, that is, the serpent would bruise on the heel, but that the seed of the woman would bruise him on the head, indicating uh, a fatal wound. The bruise on the heel would be a non-fatal wound, but the bruise on the head would be a fatal wound. So even though the serpent would in some way wound or impact the seed of the woman, eventually the seed of the woman would have uh, victory over the, the serpent. But it introduced that phrase, the seed of the woman. And this term seed is then a key word in all of Genesis. It's picked up again in um, Genesis chapter 12 with God's promise to to Abraham that he would have many descendants. That's another the, the plural of the word seed is usually translated descendants, but the singular refers to, if you trace it through biblically, refers ultimately to the Messiah. And in and the goal and objective, the strategic objective of Satan in the Old Testament was to block the fulfillment of that promise, to keep the seed of the woman from coming into existence. And we know from comparing many scriptures that the seed of the woman would be a divine human individual. And this is the Messiah. And if the 
Satan reasoned that if he could block the coming of the of the seed of the woman, could prevent that, then he could have victory. Well, he didn't block it. He tried at the birth of Jesus. He tried with the slaughter of the innocents, the babies in in Bethlehem by by King Herod. Uh, eventually, uh, he thought he had won by having the uh, Messiah having Jesus crucified, but that turned out to be the wound that was his fatal wound that he's not going to recover from because it is that wound that was rendered to, to Satan at the cross when Jesus had victory over sin and death by paying the penalty of sin and then his victory over death at the resurrection. Well, now, Satan's in a bind because he has lost strategically, but he has one last desperate hope, and that one last desperate hope is to try to show that God really can't control history to fulfill his promises to Israel, his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the land would be uh, fully controlled and dominated by Israel and that he would bring in a kingdom of unprecedented blessing and prosperity uh, to Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, into this golden age that's promised in passages like Isaiah chapter 2, uh, numerous other passages in the Old Testament, which we refer to as the millennial kingdom because of its length of a thousand years, or the messianic kingdom because the Messiah, uh, Jesus, will reign on the earth at that time. So the objective, the strategic objective of Satan during this time in history is to try to wipe out Israel so that they are not, there's no Jews left that to whom, through whom God can fulfill his promise. And if he can do that, then he thinks that he, he wins because he's proved that God can't be God. And so there is this assault on Israel, this is why everything focuses on the Middle East. This is why everything focuses on, on Jerusalem, ultimately, why that becomes the battlefield. And if w- without that perspective that comes out of the Old Testament, that comes out of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Micah, um, Daniel, other Old Testament prophets, without that perspective, then we can't really understand and interpret What is going on in the Middle East today? That doesn't mean that what is going on in the Middle East today has anything to do with the fulfillment of prophecy because all the things that we see now are really no different in scale or intensity than what has happened in the Middle East in the past. You think of the things that occurred when Nebuchadnezzar invaded the Middle East and when uh, Jerusalem was captured and destroyed the first time. In 586 B.C., you think of what happened later in AD 70 under the Romans, that that is a time of just incredible horror and and misery and suffering and death that is far greater than anything that's being experienced today. But what will come about in the end times is going to be much, much more intense and much greater greater than all of that. And the only way we can we can understand why it keeps coming back to the Middle East is to go to the Old Testament passages and to understand that the centerpiece of God's plan ultimately is on Israel. And God has a plan for Israel and God has a future plan for the Jews and that he will eventually be the one who protects them and and redeems them and rescues them. And so we have the fall of Jerusalem here that takes place as a third stage because after Armageddon, which is the area of the one here, this yellow area here up in the valley of Megiddo, the Antichrist is going to send uh, a major part of his army south about 55 miles as the crow flies from the valley of Megiddo to Jerusalem to destroy all of the Jews in Jerusalem and to take complete control of Jerusalem. Now, that's what's happening in the physical realm, but it is a manifestation of what has been going on in the spiritual realm. This takes us back to what we studied in Revelation chapter 12, where we see the heavenly warfare that takes place, the war between Michael and the holy angels of God against uh, Satan and his angels, and at this midpoint of the tribulation, we're told that, that Satan, the devil, the dragon uh, of old, is cast out of heaven. 
And in Revelation 12, 12, we read, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So the heavens are the dwelling place of the angels. Uh, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. He knows he just has a very limited time to try to win, and so he is going to pull out all of the stops. He is going to let go with everything he can in order to try to, in his final desperate moments, uh, destroy God's chosen people. Verse 13, we read, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave uh, birth to the male child. Now, that goes back to the image uh, imagery earlier in the chapter. The woman represents Israel. The male child who will rule with a rod of iron represents the, is the Messiah. The birth of the male child is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the one who will come to rule the nations with a rod of iron based on Psalm 2. In Revelation 12:14, we see the protection of God during the tribulation period. That the two wings of the and says, and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. The serpent being the devil. So this is talking about how God is going to somehow. Uh, miraculously provide for the escape of Jews from Jerusalem, and, and this will take place when the persecution from the Antichrist really ratchets up just after he desecrates the temple, just after he puts, him, puts a statue of himself in the uh, rebuilt uh, third temple that's built during the tribulation period, and he will want to be worshipped as God. And so when that sign occurs based on the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 24, that when you see these things happen, flee into the wilderness, those Jews who respond to what Jesus said are going to flee into the wilderness, and God is going to supernaturally protect them and provide for them as they flee to the wilderness for protection. And in verse 15, we read that the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like, like a flood after the woman. And I'm not sure exactly what that represents other than it represents a destructive power because if anybody has seen the power of water and the power of flood, this is incredibly powerful, represents that his just the flow of troops after, uh, after the woman to destroy her, that she flees into that rugged wilderness in the southern part of Israel known as the Negev and then across the across into the area of ancient Edom, or what is now the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. So uh, the, the Satan's going to try to destroy, destroy her, but in verse 16, the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth, which indicates another major earthquake that will destroy this army that the, uh, that the serpent sends after the Jews. And... Um, and they are going to be rescued. They are going to be heading out. Uh, and so this this is at the beginning of the period at the end of the tribulation. Now, that point that I talked about just now occurs about three and a half to four years into the tribulation period. So a lot of Jews have left, but there's still a large number living in Jerusalem. And it's interesting that Jerusalem is back in the news again because of the uh, political spats that are taking place right now over some comments made by Vice President Biden last um, last week when he was in Jerusalem disputing the presence of, uh, 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 dis- disputing some ongoing settlements that are being made or some new, new uh, building housing permits that are given in Jerusalem, new housing permits, not rather than settlements, new housing permits that are being given for Jews to build in East Jerusalem. And this is, but there's never been an agreement to stop that. Uh, Netanyahu had agreed with um, with the Obama administration to cease uh, uh, building uh, new houses, new housing developments in the West Bank. But this isn't the West Bank. There were no no agreements had been reached on East Jerusalem, and so Secretary of State and the Vice President have been. Um, 
making some very uh, strong noises about why the Israelis need to stop the settlements in Jerusalem. And uh, last night, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said they have to remember Jerusalem is not a settlement. Jerusalem is the united city that is the capital of Israel. It is not a settlement. And so they need to quit treating what they're doing as a settlement. And we know from Scripture, from these prophecies, that there will be, I mean, Jerusalem will still be a major city, major significance with a major Jewish population when we get even into the latter part of the, of the tribulation period. Now, that sets the stage as to why this is happening, why the Antichrist is going to pick out Jerusalem, of all places, to send his armies and what he is going to try to, uh, to do in destroying it. Now, the place to go to read about this destruction is at the last part of Zechariah, in Zechariah chapters 12 through 13. And when you look at the, at the book of Zechariah, Zechariah is... Second to Daniel, the most, the most important prophetic work in the Old Testament related to the end times and begins with a series of visions that take place that describe different elements related to the end times. And then in the uh, last section in chapters 9 through 14, there are... Uh, these revelations that are given that relate to a future time. Zechariah was written by the prophet Zechariah in approximately 520 B.C. Now, this is after the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon. The first group that returned under Zerubbabel came in 538. They had gone out in 586 when the Jerusalem was captured by Nebuchadnezzar and the temple was destroyed. And so they're out of Jerusalem, uh, out of Israel during this time, and they begin to return starting in 538, and they have uh, been given permission to rebuild the temple. But they have opposition, they have problems, because um, the land has been overrun by, by wild animals, and there have been various other uh, groups that have been resettled in uh, the area of, uh, of the land and that are causing all kinds of problems and opposition to rebuilding the, the city. And so they've just become rather complacent, and the work had stopped on rebuilding the temple. So two prophets came at the same time, Haggai and Zechariah, and their message was to encourage the Israelites the Jews, to rebuild, to finish rebuilding the temple because there was to be yet a still future glorious kingdom for Israel that God would provide and, in fact, God would indeed rule. So Zechariah gives various um, prophecies and visions that are related to these these end-time events. And so it's important to read through these sections because they will start with near events and then move to far events because some of the near events that occurred during the uh, intertestamental period with the breakup of the Greek Empire, the uh, assaults down into Israel from uh, the uh, Antiochian uh, rulers, especially under uh, Antiochus IV, and this is the same kind of thing we saw when we were studying Daniel chapter 11 and also in Daniel chapter um, chapter 8, that those events that occurred then foreshadowed the horrible events, the much worse events that will occur uh, during the tribulation period. And so we come upon these oracles or burdens in the last part of, of, of Zechariah, and they are they they really do interconnect and they focus on that end time uh that end time period and passages such as Zechariah 9 11 to 17 uh parallel the triumph of Jerusalem that's described in Zechariah 12 uh 1 through 9 I'm not going to go through all of the comparisons here that could take us uh, several weeks but you can put that in your notes and do some comparison on your own, that there's a parallel between Zechariah 9, 1 through 11, uh, excuse me, 9, 11 to 17, and Zechariah 12, 1 through 9. 
And then there's another parallel with the rejection of the false prophets and the false religious system and the uh, and, uh, and idols in Zechariah 13, 1 through 6, and that's parallel to the first part of Zechariah 10, verses 1, uh, 1 through 3. Then we see God presented, the Lord presented as a shepherd who gathers the remnant, the, his flock, in Zechariah 13, 7 to 9, and that is parallel to what occurs in Zechariah 10, 4 through 7. So there's an overlapping between these, these sections as they focus our attention on what will take place uh, during the final days. So then we come to this burden or oracle that is given in Zechariah chapter 12, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Now, the first thing we ought to note here is that this is against Israel. Now, when is this written? This is written in 520 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel went out under divine discipline when it was destroyed by Sennacherib and, and the Assyrians in 722 B.C. This, that was 200 years earlier. So there hasn't been a northern kingdom in 200 years. What remains is the remains of the southern kingdom that is primarily the area of Judah. In fact, even during the time of the Roman Empire, it's referred to as Judea. So this is where the, the, the terminology comes from. And historically, that's where we get the terminology Jew for, uh, for the Israelites is because of the, uh, sort of a misunderstanding that most of the Jews that re- returned were from the tribe of Judah. They weren't. They were from all of the tribes uh, in their return to the land because uh, before... Uh, the destruction in 586, and before, actually before the destruction in the north in 722, many had left the north and gone into the south. So you had members of all of the uh, tribes of Israel in the south uh, when the northern kingdom was wiped out. So there's no such thing as lost tribes of Israel. Then you had the destruction of the southern kingdom in 586, and now you're having a restoration. The first group that came back had a little over 50,000 in that group, and others came back all the way through this period uh, up to the time of ne- Nehemiah in um, about 444. So now this is going to be a prophecy against Israel, or could be translated to or toward Israel, and it starts with a reminder of who God is. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Now, what's interesting is if you go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 says God created the heavens and the earth, and the Hebrew verb there is bara. And bara doesn't have as its meaning, some people think it has as its main idea is ex nihilo, creation, or creating something out of nothing. That's inferred from the passage in the context, but if you do a word study of that particular word for creation, the only person who ever creates using with that verb used is God. God is the only subject of that verb. You have other words for create, such as asa and yatser and bana and a few others, but but man can make something asa, but only God can create something bara. And so here we have a reference to specific, special divine actions of God stretching out the heavens, laying the foundation of the earth. This indicates the very beginning of the action and forming the spirit of man within him. There's only two or three things that are said to be uh, the, the object of the special creative activity of God indicated by that verb bara in Genesis chapter 1 and the initial creation, Genesis 1.1, and the creation of man in the image of God uh, is, is the second. And so this indicates that, that God is the special creator of all things, and that is what identifies him and distinguishes him from all other gods and goddesses. And this is still part of the major problem in the Old Testament and in the world today is that we want to worship some aspect of nature, some aspect of creation, and this manifests itself in a lot of different ways, including the modern uh, environmentalist movement. 
and it elevates and deifies some aspect of creation, and the Bible again and again draws this distinction between the God, the creator God who is distinct from his creation. So that's the foundation for what is being said. It establishes his authority. And then in verse 2 we read, God saying, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all peoples around, and when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against against Judah. Now, the point here, the imagery here is this image of a cup. And what is in the cup? What's in the cup is a cup of wine. And the image that we've seen again and again is this comparison of wine and the, tre- uh, the uh, treading out the wine press and pouring out the wrath of the, uh, of, the, of the wine of God's wrath, and this this whole imagery here. So that's what it picks up on here is this same imagery of the uh, wine of God's wrath that is going to uh, so devastate everyone that that they're going to be in such a state of shock that they're going to be reeling from the impact of this the violence that occurs, it's as if they were drunk. They're just shell-shocked from what, uh, from what they uh, experienced during this time. So, and it all focuses on Jerusalem. So what we're doing is going through these passages in Zechariah, which show clearly from what is said that this occurs right near the end, just prior to the coming of the Messiah to rescue Israel and to destroy the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. And so this just organ- helps us organize all these different kinds of passages that relate to the events immediately preceding uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Zechariah 12.3 we read, And it shall happen in that day. Now, now that's another very interesting phrase. Now, I said earlier when we were studying the phrase, the day of the Lord, that this phrase... Uh, in that day often refers to the day of the Lord, and it does if that's what the context is. But it, it literally just means at that time. Now, in this passage, we know this is the time of the day of the Lord, so that is referring uh, to the day of the Lord. But this phrase, in that day, is used a more in the book of Zechariah than at any other time in the uh, in the Old Testament, it occurs 19 times in uh, various uh, four. It in, um, occurs 19 times uh, in the book, or one time in every uh, two and a half verses. So uh, this is a, a key use of the phrase in this section of Zechariah. It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone. For all people. So this is, this is something. If you happen to have listened to the, uh, speech that was made by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton yesterday morning at the APAC conference, she talked, she made reference to the fact that earlier when she was the first lady and she would travel around the world, that she would go many, many places and never, no one would ever ask about events in the Middle East and what was going on with Israel. But she was saying that now when she goes anywhere, uh, South America or to Asia, anywhere in the world, that is one of the top three questions that she is asked about is what is being done to solve the problem in the Middle East and what is being done to solve the problem in Israel. And so the Middle East problem is becoming more and more on the consciousness of everybody in the world, and a lot of that is due to the increased attention by media and all the things that go along today that we have with email and the Internet and, and all the other communication uh, devices. So this is not a fulfillment of prophecy, but it is showing how we're, we're moving in that, that direction. So Israel will be a heavy stone uh, for all peoples, and all who would heave it away will be cut into pieces. Those who try to solve this problem of Jerusalem will only hurt themselves. And then finally, at the end of that verse, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. This is the third stage in the uh, campaign of Armageddon. 
Now, that's the opening part of, of uh, Zechariah 12. We're going to skip 13, but we come back to the, the time frame in the first part of Zechariah 14. And in Zechariah 14, we read the phrase, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. So at this point, it is anticipated, but in terms of its immediacy, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. And God says, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That's exactly what was just stated back in Revelation, I mean, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse, verse 2 and in verse 2 and verse 3, that all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Then we see in verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. This is when he comes to rescue Israel. He will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So chapter 14 focuses more on the very end of the, the siege of Jerusalem. So when we look at passages like Zechariah 14.2, he says, um, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. So ultimately, it's, we see the same thing we saw in our study of the destruction of Babylon, is that it is the human instruments, it's the human leaders, it's the Antichrist, it is uh, empowered by Satan that are making the decisions to go against Jerusalem, but it is God and his sovereign power who is controlling and overseeing everything because this is going to bring all of these promises and prophecies and trends of history for over 5,000 years to a head in the city that he has called his own and is a very special city for God. He has placed his love especially on Jerusalem. So he will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. So there's going to be this horrendous siege against the city. The city is captured. The houses are plundered. There will be uh, incredible numbers of those who are killed. The women are going to be uh, raped, and half the city is going to be exiled. They're going to have to flee, and the rest of the people are cut off, and they are trapped within the city under siege. And then it's at that time that the Lord is going to come to rescue them. In verse 4 we read, In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the people with blindness. Now notice the connection with Judah, because you have the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem itself is surrounded, especially to the south, with the region, the tribal territory for the tribe of, of Judah. And there's a connection with what is going to happen with Judah. And this is brought back. We're going to shift back to Zechariah chapter 12 because that fills in, uh, fills in the gap of what, what is taking, uh, what is taking place. Or we'll skip back to verse 6 in chapter 12. And that day, God says, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile. So there's going to be the action seems to start with the tribe of Judah. They play a prominent role in the, uh, in the defense of Jerusalem and the de- ultimate defeat under the Lord of the armies of the Antichrist. And that day I'll make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile. And this is, takes the imagery of someone taking a, a, a brass uh, pan. The word that's used here is unusual. It's not usually a word for a brass sensor for carrying coals, but it's for carrying water. So it's, so it's taking the idea of a pan that's used for one purpose and that this pan is going to be used for another purpose uh, for destruction. So that wasn't their ultimate purpose, but they will be used like uh, a fire pan, uh, a pan of coals that's set in the midst of very flammable wood, and it will everything will catch on fire, picturing the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. Now, in Israel, your orientation is east, the east gate coming out of the temple, and so your right hand is south, your left hand is north, if you're facing uh, facing east. And so what we've seen in these other uh, passages, for example, the, when, in Daniel 11.35 and following, there was a rumor from the 
from the north. The Antichrist is down south. There's a rumor from the north and the east. And so you see these other orientations of the compass uh, for the battle. So in verse 6, they're, um, they, they will uh, defeat them on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. That is the future hope. The, the tribulation is not ultimately a time of destruction because it doesn't end with that. It is the, uh, the cleansing of history, the cleansing of civilization, the cleansing of Israel that needs to take place before the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom. And he will come and he will rescue Israel is what is the promise. And so we read in uh, verse Zechariah 12, 7, The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David as a descendant of Judah from Bethlehem, which is in Judah, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of David. And in verse 8, in that day, that is at that particular time, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It is the Lord who miraculously comes to defend and rescue them. Now, this doesn't happen as stage 3 in the battle. This will happen about stage uh, 5 or 6. That day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. That is, the weakest is going to be like David when he fought Goliath, so the strongest is going to be uh, extremely uh, extremely powerful as a warrior. God is going to empower them in the battle. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And then verse 9, It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come across Jerusalem. I mean, they come against Jerusalem. So we'll skip verse 10 for now because that comes in at a later stage, and we'll go to a corollary passage in Micah. Micah chapter 4, the end of Micah 4 and the beginning of Micah 5. We'll hit a very important verse here in Micah. Just turn back turn back a couple of books. It's, uh, you've got to go through uh, Zephaniah and Habakkuk and uh, Nahum, and then you come to Micah. And right at the end of Micah chapter 4, in verse 11, we see the same, um, same image. And we know from some of the things that are said here, especially in verse 12, that this has to go beyond the events, the historical events that were occurring at the time of Micah, which is roughly the same time as Isaiah. So in verse 11 we read, Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Now that same imagery of sheaves to the threshing floor was used there in Zechariah 12:6, that the uh, tribe of Judah is going to be like a firepan among the wood, a firepan uh, bringing fire to the sheaves. And this is that destructive judgment spoken of at that in Zechariah 12 and the destruction of the enemies of, of, uh, of Israel. And then verse, verse, so verse 12 says they don't understand God, they don't understand his plan, and they will be destroyed because they have set themselves on the wrong side of history against Israel. And Micah 4.13 uh, then says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, indicating to fight, go to war, destroy the enemy, threshing there being used as an, as a, as an image of fighting and warfare. Uh, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will concentrate, consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. So God is behind their action and will empower it in the destruction of the nations. Then in verse 1, which is still part of chapter 4 in the Hebrew, now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. This is not a, a fatal blow. So it is the, seen as the attack against Jerusalem is an attack against God, who is the judge of Israel. But what's the solution? Now this is the context of that very famous passage we often uh, refer to 
in um, at Christmas time this Old Testament prophecy that predicts that the birthplace of the Messiah is in this small town of Bethlehem. The ancient name was Ephrata. It was a small town at the time of uh, the conquest, at the time of David, and this is where uh, Jesus was born. It was the ancient ancient birthplace of David, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you were little, or though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. The prediction is that the one who would be this great end-time ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then it goes on to say that this one who is born in Bethlehem is one whose goings forth are from of old. He's not really temporal. He's going to have a temporal birth time, but in reality his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So that indicates that the one who's born in Bethlehem is not just human. He is also fully divine. He is has an origin that is eternal. His Beginnings are from eternity past, from the everlasting. And so it is this one who has been born in Bethlehem in this minor insignificant town is the one who will go forth to be a ruler in Israel. The focus here is on his second coming mission as the messianic ruler of Israel. Verse 3 says, Then therefore he shall give them up, until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And so we see this labor imagery used again in relationship to the who is the she who is in labor. Seems rather obscure. But if we think about that in terms of the imagery of the woman who flees into the wilderness and connect that with the imagery of labor and the labor pains, which are used again and again in passages related to uh, the day of the Lord, picturing it as the, the pains that precede the birth of the kingdom, then what this is talking about is uh, Israel as a nation is in labor, and what is being given birth to here is go- going into the glorious kingdom. Verse 4, we read, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. This is the ruler that comes forth in Israel, whose goings forth are from everlasting. He will rule in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That is the extent of his kingdom as he rules over, over the earth. And he is the one who will who will bring peace. Verse five says, "And this one, and this shall be peace." That's why he's called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah seven fourteen, is because he is the one who ultimately will destroy the the enemy and destroy evil uh, at the second coming, and for the first time in history, establish world peace. Now this connects back to what we read in Zechariah fourteen three, that the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Now, there is more to this than that third element. There is the major force of the Antichrist armies that go against Jerusalem. But then he is going to send be sending another part of his force against those Jews that fled earlier, in the uh, tribulation period, in the last half of the tribulation, and fled into the wilderness and eventually uh, to Petra. And so they will pursue them in order to destroy them. Now, Petra is located in some of the most barren moonscape uh, we might find on the planet. And here I have a map that is a topographical map where you're looking from the southwest That is the Dead Sea up in the upper left corner. So you're looking from the southwest to the northeast. You have the lower level coming out of the Dead Sea, which has been dropping at a rate of about um, three or four feet a year for a number of years. And so at one time it extended much further south. The water extended much further south than it does today. But uh, you still had this, this empty area south of the Dead Sea before you get to the Gulf of Aqaba, and that's an area where 
the the um, the Jews will flee from up in. Let me see if I can get my cursor over to. There we go. They will come. This is the hill country of Judah here. Jerusalem is off up here to the upper left to the north northwest of the Dead Sea. So these Jews will flee south out of Jerusalem across the hill country of of Judah down through all of this barren, rugged landscape here, and then cross south of the Dead Sea over into this area of ancient Edom uh, in the area of Basra, which is uh, sometimes it's identified with Petra, sometimes it's seen to be a little north or south of Petra, but it's in that whole area around the city of Petra. Now, this word Basra is a Hebrew word, that is used in Micah chapter 2, verse 12. And in Micah 2.12, the passage says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. So this is the remnant, the believers, those who have accepted Jesus as Messiah at the end of the tribulation period. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like the sheep of the fold, and the Hebrew word for that sheepfold is Basra. And then the passage goes on to say, Like a flock in the midst of their pasture, they shall make a loud noise because of so many people. So this isn't just a small number. There's a large number of Jews. Sometimes people have tried to put uh, present the case that uh, uh, this libelous case, slanderous case, that, that Christians just want Jews to get back in the land so that Jesus will come back, and then when Jesus comes back, there will be the Battle of Armageddon, and all the Jews will be wiped out because they crucified Christ. See, all, the only reason you want Jews back in the land and want to support them is because you're anti-Semitic. Well, that's, that's the uh, lie that's out there, and it's not true, and it's really rather silly to think that that's, that's what the motivation is, and it has no grounding. In, and only People who don't know anything about history try to say that and try to... Um, and would believe that. But it's amazing. People are so historically ignorant, ignorant of uh, so many different things. It's, it's, uh, like when, uh, in the late, in the late 90s, Arafat started putting out the lie that there was n- no evidence that the Jewish temple was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There's no historical evidence at all. In fact, it, it really was far south down somewhere in the Saudi Peninsula that that's where the temple was. The, the, the Jews had no historical claim uh, to the land or to the Temple Mount, and people believed them. And, you know, fortunately, a lot of Christians began to scream, e- even including uh, President Clinton, when Arafat was going to meet with um, uh, Ehud Barak at that time, and 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 you know, Clinton. I mean, that Clinton recognized that that would that destroys the whole story of Jesus and the New Testament and everything else. This is just absurd. But this lie is starting to be promoted again by the Palestinians that there's no evidence in Jerusalem of an ancient presence of the Jews. That if they were never there, there was never a Temple of Solomon. There was never a Herodian Temple. That was just uh, that was that was somewhere else. Maybe it was up in Syria. It was down. In, uh, Saudi Arabia, but it was never there uh, in Jerusalem. So people will believe that lie because they're just ignorant of history and ignorant of the facts. When we come to uh, Isaiah 34, 5, and we see that this is a site of a major battle down at Petra. And there's a picture of the what's called the treasury house there as you go in through the uh, long chute there going into uh, uh, Petra. And in Isaiah 34, 5 and 6, we read, For my sword, this is the Lord speaking, my sword shall be bathed in heaven, indicating that there is a divine mission in this judgment. Notice the sword of the Lord always indicates military power and death. My sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now that is referring to this judgment that will come against the forces of the Antichrist when they come down to try to destroy the remnant of Israel uh, hiding and protected down in Basra. So this map shows its location to the south uh, southeast of the Dead Sea over in the ancient territory of Edom. 
and that is an ancient, ancient map, and then this is a modern map showing the location uh, there of Petra in the same general vicinity, and this is the area where the natural defenses will protect the remnant from being destroyed. In Isaiah 63, there's a reference to the Messiah coming up at the time that he defeats these enemies and establishes the kingdom. And there in Isaiah 63, 1 and 2, we read, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? The picture here is that this has been such a bloody battle. His, his, his robes are covered in blood. That's the same picture you see in Revelation 19 when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven. Uh, this one is glorious in his uh, apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Uh, verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? That's the same imagery used in Revelation 17, uh, 16 and 17. Verse 3, I, uh, the Messiah responds, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. That is, from the nations, from the Gentiles no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes for the day of vengeance. That is, the day of wrath, another term for the day of the Lord, the day of God's justice, because vengeance in the Hebrew has more the idea of justice than personal vindictiveness. The day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. This is when Israel as a nation will be uh, realize their national redemption, not talking about individual redemption there. And then we have another passage in uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter 49, beginning verse 13, down through 18. Here we read, For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall come, become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all its cities shall be perpetual wastes. And I have heard a message from the Lord, and an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Gather together, come against her, and rise up to battle. For indeed, I will make you small among the nations, despised among men. Your fierceness has deceived you, the pride of your heart, uh, O you who dwell in the clefts of the rock. So that's a perfect description of, uh, a perfect description of Petra. Those who dwell in the cleft of the rocks, who hold the height of the hill, And though you may make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there. Edom also shall be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at all of its plagues, as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors. So this hasn't happened yet historically. Now, just a couple of pictures here before we wrap up to give you a little orientation. Here's another topographical map showing the location of Basra. And you see all of the brown and tan-shaded area. That's just... Uh, some of the most uh, arid desert land anywhere in the um, anywhere in the Middle East, uh, anywhere in the world, for uh, for that matter. Now, as the Jews are going to leave, what happened? Okay, as the Jews are going to leave Jerusalem, they escape. That's a picture of Betty there, but th- that valley that's over her right shoulder, they escape down south through that valley and then head further south past Bethlehem into this rugged, arid territory that heads down to the south of the Dead Sea area. And you can see that this is uh, not the most attractive and comfortable area to be trying to g- move through, but it is a, an area that gives them a tremendous amount of natural Protection, and then once they get across over into the area of uh, around Petra, it's an area where they will be protected by all of the uh, natural fortifications and boundaries. So we see all kinds of people show up over in Petra. One and one other, yeah. So this brings us then to what happens in Petra. This will be stage five when Israel will cry out to God for help to deliver them at the time of the end of the tribulation period. So we'll start up with five next in our next class. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that you are in control and that we're living in the devil's world and that there is real sin and evil in the world, real sin and evil in human history. 
and that this is what motivates the assaults against Israel, assaults, the anti-Semitism against the Jews, and that this will not end until uh, the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And until then, it is important to continue to be in support of Israel, to be continue to be in support of, of the Jews because they are your, your people. And, Father, we do continue to pray for the uh, salvation of Israel and pray for those who will be instrumental in taking the gospel to the Jews during this, this time and during this dispensation. Father, we pray that we might recognize that there's an important role for us in all of this in terms of just what we pray for and also in terms of how we understand history and how we can better understand the trends that are going on uh, in history in our own time and that we might be encouraged that no matter how dark the days may seem, they will get much darker, and that you are in control, and that we have a mission from you that is not determined by uh, the things that we see going on around us politically or the things that are going on around us economically, and that these are simply the details of life, but our mission is to go forth as bright and shining lights in the midst of a dark and perverse generation, that our mission is to uh, proclaim the gospel and to make that clear to the people around us so that they can come to understand uh, their own salvation and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior as well. I pray that we might be encouraged by these things. In Christ's name, amen.